we'll continue in our uh, study of the Lord's Prayer. We'll have this week, next week, and then a conclusion, and then we'll go on a little hiatus through the rest of December, all of January. We'll start a new study in February, okay? Which I think will be, not sure, uh, the book of Acts, I think, okay? Okay, let's pray, and then we'll look at this at this section, the, the uh, fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Holy Father, we come before you, um, gathered together as the body, the body of our head, our Lord Jesus Christ, in thanks and great appreciation for our salvation. May we learn something this morning about forgiveness. Lord, in a relational sense, not only our relationship with you, but with one another as well, and to see the conditions involved here, and to understand them correctly, we pray for guidance by your Spirit, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is our focus this morning uh, with the footnotes, so to speak. Uh, a footnote of verse 12 is verses 14 and 15. If you notice, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is the greatest need of the human heart. We'd all agree with that. Forgiveness is the greatest need of the human heart. Uh, because sin has a twofold effect. Number one, first and foremost, o- overall, it damns men and women forever. That's its future effect. And the present effect is that it, it, that it brings about unrelieved, unrelenting guilt upon the conscience. And it robs men of the fullness of life, it robs them of joy, and it robs them of peace of mind. Sin here is likened to a debt. And it's likened to a debt because it deserves to be punished, as we will see. Uh, So many people suffer internal torment, uh, psychological anguish, uh, because of this indebtedness. The indebtedness of a guilty conscience over their sins, whether they admit it or not, He's talking about the world in general. Whether they admit it or not, there there is this inward um, guilt that that people, as we know in Romans 1, try to suppress. Try to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, and that's caused by way of guilt. Um, John Stott, uh, in a book he wrote, one of many, 
entitled Confess Your Sins, he quotes the head of a large British hospital um, as having said this, and I quote, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they were assured of forgiveness. If they were assured of forgiveness. Forgiveness is man's deepest need. It's his deepest need now. It's his deepest need in the future. It's his deepest need for present health and eternal heaven. And this here, if you notice, is the first petition of this prayer that relates to man's soul. In the first three petitions, we have, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. All those relate to God, and we went over those in detail. And then the last three petitions relate to man. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the first of the last three is for physical provision. Okay, give us our daily bread. And that, by the way, is the only one with regard to physical uh, provision. And the other two are for spiritual provision. Uh, The spiritual, obviously, is much more important. But nevertheless, the physical becomes first because in order to uh, adhere to these principles, spiritual principles, we need to be physically alive, amen? So we need food, we need to be sustained, we need to be living. So first, our our physical needs are met in verse 11, and then we come to the spiritual, uh, the first and most basic request on the part of the inner man is for the forgiveness of sins. This is man's deepest spiritual need. This is where man must first meet God, amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's verse 3 of the Sermon on the Mount. The first recorded teaching words out of the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize their moral bankruptcy, their absolute failure, their inadequacy to do anything about the sin in them, which leads them to God. So before God leads us, or leads us not into temptation, before he delivers us at all from anything, uh, man must have a relationship with God. Amen? Very simple, he must have a relationship with God, which is possible only when his sins are dealt with, positionally, first and foremost, through Christ. God is a holy God, of purer eyes than to behold evil. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, said Isaiah. God is holy. And if you notice here, for the first time in the Lord's Prayer, we encounter the word and. Did you notice that? The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, is followed by the word and. Okay? And forgive us our debts, indicating a very close connection between those two petitions. That is, just as we pray for daily bread, we should also pray for daily forgiveness. Which tells us, quite simply, that Jesus does not anticipate a time in this age when we will not need daily what? Forgiveness. Because sin is an ongoing concern in the Christian life. Forgiven sinners are not done with sin forever. Not yet, amen? Not yet, just look at your morning, just look at your day yesterday. (laughs) In J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, 
It was first published in the late 19th century, still in print to this very day. We're going through it with the men on Thursday nights. And shockingly for some, it's not shocking for me, I think it's great, he opens the book. The very opening line is this. He talks about sin. Quote, He that wishes to attain the right views to right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. I make no apology for beginning this volume of papers about holiness by making some plain statements about sin, end quote. And he was no doubt correct. Sin is the crucial issue in any consideration of the Christian life. You go down the wrong path here as a Christian, everything else gets twisted out of shape. Period. Adopt a less than biblical view of sanctification, you will entertain weak and light views about sin. And when you entertain weak or light views about sin, you will hold to light views about holiness. It's that simple. So for a Christian to take sin less seriously than the Bible takes it is to fall into one of sin's most treasured qualities. And you know what the treasured quality of sin is? Deceitfulness. That's right, brother. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another, another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All right, when we read uh, Jeremiah 17, it says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? I have heard, I don't know how many Christians say, yet you can't apply that to a Christian because they get their position mixed up with their practice. Well, well, here it is. It's very simple for anyone who falls into this error. Here it says the heart is deceitful. Okay, what is the heart? It's the will. It's the intellect. It's the seed of one's thinking. Now, in a positional sense, we've been made right with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, as we'll learn this morning. But the Christian is warned here in Hebrews not to be what? Hardened. Hardened by what? Deceitfulness of sin. Where do you get hardened? In the heart. That is the mind, the will, the seed of your thinking. And that's the warning. Deceitfulness of sin makes itself at home for the Christian when it is allowed to harden the heart. Unfortunately, the church gets caught up with all sorts of things other than the consideration of sin, and they refuse to see their sanctification as an engaged activity. There's this issue pushed so hard today with regard to self-esteem. We see this, amen? Self-esteem. Not self-denial. And God forbid self-examination. <laughs> Now, some of these TV preachers know well the mind of our age. And they play off it. Okay, everybody's a victim. 
So here's one TV preacher. He's quoted as saying this, quote, Don't tell people that they're sinners. It will destroy their self-esteem. I say don't tell them that sin is a debt because it'll ruin their self-worth. Right? When we get to verse 12 in Romans 8, which we will next week, listen to what the scripture says. So then, brothers, church, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's beautiful. Paul, at this point in Romans, he moves from what God has done for the believer through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to what the believer is expected to do in response. Empowered and therefore expected to do. It's very simple. And there's a strong emphasis there placed on human responsibility accomplished by the Christian who's born again to yield to the Holy Spirit. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit there is described as mortification. The Spirit mortifying what? Sin. We are debtors to the Spirit, no longer debtors to the flesh. We're debtors to the Spirit who indwells Every true believer. We're debtors. Okay, that is, beloved, we are obligated to live, not subject any longer to a sinful nature, but an obligation to live and to serve God in terms of, or in subject to, we could say, the Holy Spirit. Because we can. We're no longer natural men. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him. We're no longer natural. We've been transferred by way of transformation. So it's interesting here. Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Christian will answer, well, I thought our debt was paid at the cross. And there is a sense, beloved, in which sin is dealt with in our justification once and for all and forever. Amen? Okay, this we know. The, the satisfaction that Jesus offered on the cross is indeed sufficient once and for all to cleanse us and render us acceptable to God. That's our salvation. Well, if that's true, someone will ask, if our sins are truly forgiven by reason of our justification, why do we still ask for forgiveness? Why do I, as a believer, ask God to forgive my sins? I've actually heard Christians say that. Is anyone else? I have heard them say that. As a believer, your sins are already forgiven, no doubt, in a judicial sense. Justification is God's judicial act where he pardons our sins. We've seen this through Romans. He pardons our sins on account of what Jesus Christ has done, all of that which he has accomplished on our behalf. That's the judicial sense in which we're forgiven. Through justification, we're made right with God. We have peace with God, right? Romans 5, we'll see today there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, none whatsoever. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are actually the righteousness of God. Amen to that. The righteousness of God. We do not earn salvific forgiveness or we do not earn the, the, the forensic declaration of that eternal pardon. That is a gift. 
That is a grace gift. And he promises never to withdraw his justification that was paid once and for all, nailed to the cross by way of his son, Jesus. Amen? We get this clear. So God has mercifully resolved our debt problem by, by, nailing it to that, by nailing that note to Christ. Forgiven. Okay? Why then do I still ask for forgiveness? Quite simply, because I continue to sin. It's really simple. But that simple answer, for, for some strange reason, beloved, is just not obvious, even within the Reformed community. There's still an antinomian spirit, as there was back in the Reformers' day. There's an antinomian ad- attitude. Antinomian meaning no law to be against the law of God. Okay, and antinomians, or, or those who, who, who have this mentality, they lose sight of two things, very important. They lose sight of two things. Number one, they lose sight of the fact that there's a difference between the law as works-based effort and law as a guide for life for the Christian by the resident presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and has ascribed the law where? Upon our hearts. They, they, They confuse those two. And they also confuse the distinction between justification and adoption. Justification and adoption. In justification, God acts as a rightful judge, declaring you free from all blame. In adoption, he acts towards us as what? Father. As father. That is, God expects his adopted children for whom he has purchased and transformed and is transforming To obey him. Is that simple for us? To obey him. And he's displeased and does make known his displeasure when we do not. As a loving what? Father. Are you displeased, moms and dads, when your children blatantly disobey you? Of course you are. Or you're not a good parent. Of course. See, any other view is ridiculous and simply unbiblical. And we start confusing these things. Jesus says, this is conditional. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This kind of forgiveness, beloved, has to do with daily pardon, not positional eternal pardon. Okay? This forgiveness has to do with paternal pardon, not positional pardon. Paternal, fatherly, daily, relational, communal forgiveness. Not positional, not judicial. That's the difference, amen? Very important. No Christian in this life will ever reach the plateau plateau of sinless perfection. We're sinners and simultaneous saints. Saints and sinners, sinners, saints. That's what we are. We're forgiven, but yet we still sin. So this petition for pardon points us back to our Father, our loving Father, who has removed our guilt once and for all. And we, beloved, we live as children. 
of our Father. He represents us. Jesus represents us before the Father as what? As righteous in heaven. He represents us as righteous in heaven. We are Christians, little Christ, children of God, Christ's representatives on earth. Christ represents us before the Father positionally. We represent Christ on earth practically in practice. You raise your kids to go out from the home as adults to carry on the name of the family. My son and my daughter are out there. One lives in L.A., one lives in San Francisco. They represent Roxy and I to some degree as our children. So they're expected to carry themselves in a certain way. And they were trained for that. Okay, so there's the difference between positional pardon and paternal pardon. Okay, do we get that? And this is precisely what Jesus meant in the foot washing incident that that Jesus' teaching, it, 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 it uh, preceded his teaching in the upper room, John 13 through 17, it's all one night. And the whole evening begins with the foot washing, John 13, if you want to take a look. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the fullest. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who it was who would betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Notice, a person who's had a bath, Jesus suggested only needs to wash his feet for his whole body is clean. But not all of you are clean, verse 10. Now, culturally, in Jesus' day, before traveling to a dinner party, you would take a bath. Okay, If I invited you to dinner and we lived in this day, you would take a bath. If I invite you to dinner now, it's good if you take a bath. (laughs) En route to the home, you would collect dust on your feet as you walked along the way. Before dinner, sitting low at a table, did not have chairs like we have. They sat on the floor, low tables. You would lean back, and typically your feet were next to someone else's face. So prior to dinner, the house servant, or someone in the home, 
would provide foot washing for the guests. Nobody did that this night. Jesus took it upon himself to do it. So ongoing forgiveness is a bit like the way in which we, we wash our hands uh, before dinner, although we had a bath three hours earlier. Or it's like washing our hands and face before we go to bed, although we had a shower a few hours earlier. Same idea. And one implication of this petition is the need that we have as Christians to keep short accounts with God. Amen? We're forgiven positionally. We've already had a bath. We're bathed in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. We're in Him. We're cleansed, forgiven once and for all and forever, positionally, but we need daily pardon as we walk along the road and pick up the dust of the world. Amen? That's paternal forgiveness. Pardon on a daily basis. This is one of the aspects of discipleship I taught my children growing up. Keeping short accounts with God. Making sure they understand that faith in Christ alone is what they need to be saved. That they're positionally forgiven. It was nailed to Christ on the cross. But as a child of God, He is our Father. You must keep short accounts with God. Remain sensitive to the Spirit. Being fed the Word. Being fed the truth. Sitting under the Word. Participating in fellowship with Him. And I was blessed having spent time with my daughter last week. We, they came down for Thanksgiving. The son, the daughter, my son's wife. We spent time together. And then I drove with my daughter in her car back to San Francisco. We stopped in Hollywood. She could go to Cody's place. We spent time together. And, the, and the, just the talk was wonderful. The fellowship was rich. And what do I hear her talk about in her relationship with God? About this. And she actually said... You know, it's so important to keep short accounts with God. You know how blessed it is for a father to hear that? You pour into them for years, and now as adults, they reiterate this truth because they're applying it to their life. That's a blessing, wonderful blessing. So we're told to pray today about today's sins. Why? Because letting sins pile up is a bit, li- a bit like what happens when uh, our relationships with each other, say, in our family, uh, are not dealt with. You know, letting the sun go down on your sin, letting the sun go down on your anger, rather, your wrath. What happens when, when, when you do that? Resentment grows. Resentment grows. Communication gets stifled. Bitterness and coldness set in. That's the result. And this happens to the unconfessing, unrepentant believer. A believer. So to escape the conscience of conviction, not condemnation, but conviction, you will usually reconstruct your doctrine. Instead of just confessing your sin and repenting and moving on. We are so crafty. We are so crafty. 1 John 1, 9 is such a blessed hope for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, right? He'll cleanse us. This is our greatest comfort as believers. Confession of sin is necessary to receive the paternal forgiveness of God. Did you get that? If we want this paternal forgiveness, we must confess our sins and repent. Forgiveness is already available. Why? Because the penalty has been paid for on the cross. 
It's paid for already. The propitiation and the covering have been provided. God is satisfied in his son. You're covered in Christ. You're cloaked in the righteous robes of Christ. The satisfaction has already been accomplished. God is satisfied in his son. And you are in the son. So on a daily, on a daily basis, it's only a matter of receiving the gift. And basic to that reception of that glorious gift is confession of sin. It's confession of sin. You know, this petition is the only one of six. The only one of the six petitions in this prayer that Jesus provides additional instruction. Another feature arises from this petition by way of qualification. By way of qualification, our sins are only forgiven, notice, so long as we forgive those who may sin against us. Notice verse 14. Verse 14, Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, where they themselves, where we are embracing a bitter heart of resentment or unforgiveness, when we do or when they do, whoever they are who are Christians, do they forfeit salvation? Of course not. No, 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 no. They do not forfeit salvation in God's forgiveness in a salvific sense, in a positional sense, but they do forfeit God's blessing. They do forfeit God's blessing and may even experience the hand of God's chastening. Why? Because he chastens those he he loves. So the bestowal of God's ongoing grace, not his salvific grace, but the bestowal of ongoing grace is determined by or conditional upon the evidence of a life of grace that is already present. And this isn't to show him anything because he knows where he's placed his grace. Amen? He knows where he has laid his grace to save. But grace that has been gifted to us to save us manifests itself for the sake of one another, not for God, as well as ourselves. We know this. So works in the Christian life aren't there to save us. We've already been saved. But works in the Christian life provide evidence that grace has been granted to us in the heart of the believer. Amen? Because without them, there's no evidence of rebirth. There's no evidence of the new birth. There's no testimony as to the Spirit's presence. And the parable of the unmerciful servant, right, in Matthew 18, we're all familiar with that, is designed to teach this very lesson. So let's look at it. Matthew 18. Beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's 20 years of wages. We can compare this to, say, a $20 million debt compared to a $20 debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. There's that word debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, 20 bucks. (laughs) And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay. That's debtor's prison. Until he should pay. When his fellow servants saw what what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with him. And should, not have had mercy, and should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Okay, notice here he's delivered to jailers, not tormentors. Not tormentors, not executioners. Until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, beloved, this is a, an illustration of divine chastening, not divine condemnation. That's the, that's the point of the illustration. The point is this. To whom much is given, much is what? Much is required. The one forgiven much must be ready and willing to forgive others as they ask him for forgiveness key. The point here is this. If someone sins against me, acknowledging their guilt, repenting of their sin, okay, they ask for forgiveness, they repent, I am bound to forgive their debt. Amen? I'm bound to forgive. I've been forgiven, so we are to forgiven even 70 times 7. We've received pardon from our Heavenly Father, our perfect Holy Father, has forgiven me, my wretched soul, my wretched sin. So for me to refuse pardon to those who sin against me and ask for forgiveness and repent is to abuse the very mercy shown to me. John Stott comments on this, quote, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, The injuries that others may have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offense of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. End quote. Okay, so question. Is forgiveness on our part unconditional? Don't answer the question yet. Is forgiveness on our part unconditional? Should we grant forgiveness, for example, to those who are unrepentant? The question might be asked this way. 
In the process of bringing about forgiveness and reconciliation, does the entire obligation rest upon the person who sinned against? Answer, no, not according to the Bible. Does the offender have an obligation? According to the Bible, yes, he does. There's obligation on both ends. However, this is a big however, that does not cancel out the offended party's obligation to do everything in his power to open wide the gate of reconciliation. That's a big however. I want you to notice Luke 17. The words of our Lord... Verse 1, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Is that, beloved, a conditional statement? Conditioned upon what? Repentance and the asking of forgiveness. It's really simple. I was watching the news this week, a couple nights ago. An 80-year-old man was brutally attacked by two punks who knocked on his door, barged in, beat him, and ransacked his house. They were actually caught in the act. They were thrown in the squad. And as the camera is panning about, it goes to their little faces in the car, and they're making mocking faces in the camera. There's no doubt about their guilt, but they're going to be given a trial, right? Rightly so. And let's say at the sentence, they're found guilty. And they begin to mock the victim. They give the victim the evil eye. And let's just say this old man is a Christian. Okay, is he obligated to forgive them? That's the question. Now, some worldly counselor will come and say, Look, uh, unless you forgive the attacker, you'll never know rest within. But that kind of psychology seems to focus on self. It seems to focus on psyche if we follow this through. Rather than upon the true condition and the ultimate well-being of those who sinned against him. Insistence upon granting forgiveness to the unrepentant, if we look at the whole scope and what Jesus says, is really an unbiblical thing. The most important thing for those two young thugs to know is the ultimate salvation of sinners. And that can only be done by pointing out their sins, not ignoring them. So many Christians are afraid to point out the world's sins today because it seems what? Unloving. It's the greatest, most loving thing you can do. 
Because it leads you to the cross and your need for forgiveness. For with, without, without which you stand condemned. In, in Scripture, salvation comes at the end of a process. Amen? It involves conviction of our sinfulness, conviction of our unworthiness, and conviction of our eternal indebtedness. Right? This is where, where the sinner comes to understand. His sin. So to suggest that forgiveness is possible without, for, without repentance flies in the face of the gospel. People say, well, Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, yes, forgive these Jews and Gentiles who do not recognize me as the only one who can save them. But question is, when they died, were they forgiven? They were if What? if they repented and believed on the one they crucified. God does not forgive without repentance. In a salvific, positional sense, he tells us here, he doesn't forgive in a paternal sense when we don't forgive those who sin against us. Now, let's say out of those two attackers... One, like one of the thieves on the cross, (laughs) recognizes his sin, recognizes his offense, recognizes what he has done to this old man, and he begins to beg for forgiveness. And let's say this man is a Christian, this old man, this 80-year-old man. It's very clear, as difficult as it may be, it is our moral duty to forgive because we've been forgiven. Amen? And it will be his duty to do the same. You know, people will say, I'm sorry, and never repent, right? I've done that with my wife. Sinned against my wife, maybe it's a comment I make or whatever, and she confronts it, points it out, and I say, right, honey, sorry, without repenting. And then the Spirit convicts you, and you can tell that your wife doesn't really receive the apology because it was not sincere, and then you're broken and you repent, Amen? Saying I'm sorry without admitting your sin is a cheap way of evading Scripture's demands for honesty and integrity. People have sinned against me, and they've said I'm sorry. That wasn't repentance, because the thing they did is the same thing they keep doing. And without asking for forgiveness, there is no 70 times 7 unless there's repentance and an asking of forgiveness. So genuine repentance is much more than saying, I'm what? I'm sorry. You don't even find the word apologize in the Bible. (laughs) It's repent, confess, and move. And there's forgiveness. Relational forgiveness. Forgiveness. Been ministry fairly long time. Someone sinned me against me once by, by actually pretending to be me with somebody else on the telephone. They impersonated me. I'm not going to tell you where I was in ministry at this time. You have no idea about this. He was confronted by me. Because this is like a fraudulent thing. I said, you pretended to be me. This is what he said. I messed up. Sorry. 
And he went to another place of fellowship. I'm not going to tell you where I was serving at that time. He went to another place. And he says, whoa, why aren't you over at such? He says, well, I had a problem with one of the elders. Yeah, you had a problem with one of the elders, all right. <laughs> Saying I'm sorry is not repentance. What we need to say is this. I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm asking you to do the same. That's repentance. That's repentance. And in that case, the believer must not in any way refuse to forgive as we ourselves have been what? Freely forgiven. Having sinned against a holy, righteous, pure God. So true closure, beloved will only come about as true forgiveness is granted, okay, that's only half the equation, and true repentance is decided. There's true reconciliation. So as believers, forgiving one another and repenting towards one another is an essential part of receiving forgiveness for ourselves. For one of the chief evidences of true repentance is a forgiving spirit. That's Jesus' point. Amen. We'll close with the words of our Lord once again. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven as we also have I'm sorry give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses again it's paternal versus what Positional. It's very important that we understand the difference. Father, we do thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, for your kindness, and for your long-suffering. And may we, as your adopted children, heirs to the throne of grace, may we, dear God, as kings and priests, children of the Most High, Bear witness to the grace granted to us once and for all in a positional sense, lived out in a practical, practical sense. For the glory of your name and the good of your people, the strength of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.